The following program is sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content. Welcome to From the Median, a daily report from the front line of the pro-life movement, discussing two worldviews that are driving our culture in opposite directions. From the Median asks, which side of the road are you on? What direction do you want our culture to go? Tune in as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. And now your host, Molly Smith. Good evening and welcome to From the Median, where we are concerned with the middle ground, not just to understand both sides of an argument, but also to awaken the consciences of those who are neutral or indifferent to this, the greatest civil rights movement of all times, the pro-life movement. This evening, we continue our Bringing America Back to Life series. Tonight, we will feature a presentation from our 2023 convention. Our speakers' ideas will inspire you with principles, experiences, and wisdom as they join us to pave the way back to life through prayer, action, voting, and education. I am pleased to introduce Mark Paoletta, a partner at Shurjaffe LLP Law Firm in Washington, D.C., and a senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. As a lawyer in the White House Counsel's Office in the George H.W. Bush administration, Mark played a crucial role in the confirmation of Justice Clarence Thomas. He is co-editor with Michael Pack of the recently published book, Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. He has created a website to honor our nation's most outstanding jurist, www.justicethomas.com. During his time in the Trump administration, he worked on the confirmations of Justice Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and several other nominees. Mark served for a decade as Chief Counsel for Oversight and Investigation for the Energy and Commerce Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives, managing nearly 200 investigative hearings. Listen to his talk, Be Not Afraid, Justice Clarence Thomas's Inspiring Life and Jurisprudence. I want to thank Molly for, for inviting me to speak here on Justice Clarence Thomas, who I consider to be our nation's greatest Supreme Court justice ever and our greatest living American. He is the living embodiment of the phrase that's the title of this conference and the title of my speech, which is Be Not Afraid. Molly talked last night about the power of this beautiful phrase found throughout the Bible. Pope John Paul II used this, these words as part of his speech to begin his papacy uh, in 1978 and said these words throughout. He's the, in my view, in, in my, sort of my view, he's the one who popularized this phrase and became so meaningful to me. He said, never ever give up on hope, never doubt, never tire, and never become discouraged. Be not afraid. That is how Justice Clarence Thomas has lived his life, most especially as a justice on the Supreme Court. He has been subject to the most vile, despicable, and racist attacks, including now many death threats, actionable death threats, simply for having his own thoughts, and worse, for never bowing to his attackers. Bob mentioned how I worked on Justice Thomas's confirmation in 1991 as a lawyer in the White House Counsel's Office. It was a searing experience, and we went through that living hell together. That type of fight bonds you like nothing else. But a few months after Justice Thomas was confirmed, uh, and he was recovering from his own wounds, I was diagnosed with cancer at 29 years of age. My wonderful wife, Tricia, who's here today, had just had our first child, and it was a very difficult time. But Justice Thomas, through my surgeries and my chemotherapy, visited me or called me every single day to lift my spirits. When I had recovered and my hair had grown back in a wildly wavy mess, much different than it is right now, Justice Thomas signed a photo of us saying, nice hair, buddy, we survived. And we have been bonded like brothers ever since. I wanted to give you a little background on my book, In 2016, after another vicious attack on Justice Thomas in the form of a movie titled Confirmation, starring Kerry Washington as Anita Hill, I was fed up with these smears and wanted to make a movie that was fair to him. And through friends, I connected up with a filmmaker, Michael Pack, and he made a fabulous documentary titled Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words, which came out in theaters in January 2020, just before COVID hit. 
It was shown on PBS and is a beautiful film. I urge you all to watch it. It's on Amazon, Fox Nation, and other streaming platforms. It's also on DVD. I, I brought 20 copies with me. I'm going to show some of the clips during this talk. You will want to get this movie. It's, it is a spectacular movie. The film is based on 25 hours of one-on-one -on -one interviews that Michael Pack did with Clarence Thomas. I sat through these sessions, and there were so many comments, just as Thomas said, that I thought, bingo, this is going to be great in the movie. People are going to love Justice Thomas making an observation on this or that. But in a two-hour film, you can only get so much in. And so many exchanges were left on the cutting room floor. And it was, and it was painful to me as we were making the movie. But a light went off that we needed to package this up into a book. And that's what this book is. It's the, it's the extended interview from this 25 hours covering Clarence Thomas's life, his jurisprudence, and it's also six hours of, of interviews with Janie Thomas, Justice Thomas's wife. He talks about his upbringing, his faith, his challenges, his heroes, his favorite movies and books, his jurisprudence, and even how the court works. It's a wonderful book. I co-edited it, so I didn't write it. So it's really just Justice Thomas's words that I'm, I'm bringing, bringing to you. You are all engaged in a Herculean effort to make our country in our laws, more pro-life, to protect the millions of unborn children, to defend life. You should be honored for this noble effort. Instead, you are being attacked, smeared, vilified, and defamed. So for these battles, I thought I would provide you some inspiration by talking about Justice Thomas's amazing life and how he has always stood up for what he believes in, and most inspiringly, never backing down. In terms of where he started, Clarence Thomas has come further than any justice on the Supreme Court in modern times, and probably much further back than that. He was born under state-enforced segregation in Pinpoint, Georgia, outside of Savannah, in a shanty by the water in 1948. I took these photos. This is right near his home, uh, right off the, the coast here. The house he lived in had no running water, the holes in the walls were plugged with news, old newspapers, no electricity but one light bulb, and no indoor plumbing. His father abandoned the family when Clarence was two, and his mom, Leola, was left to raise three little kids, all under the age of four. Clarence's parents were uneducated, his mom was a maid for white families in Savannah, and also worked in the crab factory in, in Pinpoint. The little house he was living in burned down in 1955, and so Clarence and his brother moved to Savannah to live with his mom in a one-room tenement where there's only a kerosene stove for heat they often could not afford to use. He slept on a chair while his mom and brother slept in the bed. There was little food. There was no indoor plumbing, and you, you had to walk on wood slats to avoid the raw sewage outside the tenement. This photo by Walker Evans is from the 1930s of the west end of Savannah, right in the same area where Justice Thomas lived. He keeps a framed copy of this photo in his, in, his, in his chambers to remind him of where he came from. He was often left unaccompanied, often did not go to school, and wandered around the streets of Savannah. He was six years old. Things were not looking good. And then two things happened that changed his life completely. Because his mom was struggling to raise three children, she asked her father and stepmother if they could help. And one Saturday morning, he and his brother, Myers, packed up all their belongings in a paper bag and walked the two blocks to his grandparents' home. In the interview, Clarence says, that was the longest and most significant journey I ever made because it changed my entire life. It was a home that his grandfather had built with other family members for $600, but as Clarence described in the book, for us, this could have been a palace. When his brothers arrived, the first thing his grandfather said was, boys, the damn vacation is over. From now on, it's going to be rules and regulations, manners and behavior. His grandfather, Myers Anderson, born in 1907, was a stern and proud man who ran his own small fuel oil delivery business. Myers Anderson's grandmother, Annie Allen, who raised him after his own mother died when he was 12, had been born into slavery in 1851. 
His grandfather had gone to school for a total of nine months, was uneducated, and could barely read. He could only make out a few words in the Bible. But Myers Anderson may have been uneducated, but he was the wisest man Clarence Thomas has ever known. Clarence worked with his grandfather every day after school, delivering fuel oil, and then in the summer, working in the farm, on the farm in Liberty County. From his grandfather, he learned about hard work and perseverance. And his grandfather repeatedly told him, Old man Kent is dead. I helped to bury him. The second life-changing development um, also happened in 1955 when his grandfather enrolled Clarence and his brother Myers in St. Benedict's, a segregated all-black Catholic elementary school run by the Franciscan Sisters of the Immaculate Conception. Myers Anderson knew that education was the key ingredient to have his grandsons rise above his own circumstances. Here's a clip from Created Equal. He had gone his own way and converted to Roman Catholicism in 1949. It followed that Catholic schools had to be better than public schools. So he sent my brother and me to one. Remember now, I'm seven years old. My brother's six. And he says to us, you are going to go to school every day. And if you are sick, you're still going. And if you die, you will go. I will take your body for three days to make sure you're not faking. And he meant it. I mean, the thing about it is, it's one thing if somebody says it and you think they're exaggerating. He wasn't that kind of guy. The Catholic schools were very orderly. My brother used to say, when you walked in there, you could hear a gnat tiptoeing across cotton. It was segregated. The nuns didn't much appreciate the fact that blacks were treated that way. They were mostly Irish nuns, and they were outspoken to, oh, God, I love it. They were on our side from day one. You knew they loved you. And when somebody, when you think somebody loves you and deeply cares about your interests, somehow they can get you to do hard things. So you can see a lot of these clips during this talk because I love this movie. Um, so as Clarence Thomas said, many of these nuns were, were straight from Ireland. Their mission was to teach those in disadvantaged areas. And many went to the Deep South, including at St. Benedict's. The school was headed by Sister Mary Virgilius, who is the school principal and Clarence Thomas's eighth grade teacher. She was tough and ran a very disciplined school. That's Sister Virgilius in the middle. I don't want to get ahead of our story, but Sister Virgilius, at 78 years of age and with a broken arm, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991 on behalf of her former student, Clarence Thomas. There is... I had the privilege of, of calling her to ask her to testify. She told me she had a broken arm and she couldn't testify. And then I convinced her <laughs> that her broken arm was no impediment at all to testifying and she should get tougher. <laughs> and I'll always remember the words she said back to me, which I won't repeat here. But <laughs> I got her to the hearing and she was, she was great. And those were the real hearings, not the, the second set of hearings. Um, Clarence Thomas described the impact the nuns had on his life. You, you saw a little bit in the, in the movie, but in, in a moving tribute he gave to them in Savannah in 1984. And I'll just read this. There was no way I could have survived it had not been for the nuns, our nuns who made me pray when I didn't want to and didn't know why I should, who made me work when I saw no reason to, who made me believe in the equality of races when our country paid lip service to equality and our church tolerated inequality who made me accept the responsibilities for my own life when I looked for excuses. No, my friends, without our nuns, I would not have made it to square one. 
So it's this foundation of his grandparents and the nuns that Clarence Thomas is able to follow Pope John Paul's admonition, be not afraid. In high school, Clarence Thomas believed he had a calling to be a priest. So he convinced his grandfather to let him enroll in St. John Vianney, a high school seminary for aspiring priests. But it also had been a segregated all-white school until 1964, when Clarence Thomas was one of the first two black students to attend. His grandfather literally just dropped him off, and he was alone in a new world. After his first year, the other black student had left. As, as Clarence said in the book, when I was in the seminary, you just walk into a room, look around at the, your classmates. They're white, I'm black. I'm different. I got that part. What do we have in common? That's what I started thinking through. We're Catholic. We're all about the same age. We're all males. We all think we have a vocation. We all have to take Latin. We're all scared to death of Father Coleman, who headed up the school. And then you just go down the list. So I began to focus more on what we had in common with people than what our differences were. Clarence Thomas excelled in the classroom and everywhere else. He persevered and graduated as one of the top students in the class. When he graduated in 67, he attended a seminary college, but loses his vocation through some racial incidents at that school, culminating around the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Clarence Thomas is very upset the church is not taking a stronger stand on racial injustices. He leaves after his first year and enrolls at Holy Cross College in Massachusetts. He began to move towards black nationalism and rejected his grandparents and the nuns' principles. He stopped going to church, such was his disillusionment. In his memoirs, he said he felt like a man without a country. In the book, he recounts, I was angry at everybody, angry at the world. For the first time in my life, racism and race explained everything. It became sort of the substitute religion. I shoved Catholicism aside, and now it was this. It was all about race. He participated in protests and walkouts. He ultimately attended a protest in Cambridge, which turned into a full-blown riot and shook Thomas to his core. He got back to Holy Cross campus and stopped in front of the chapel. And he said in the book, I asked God, if you take anger out of my heart, I'll never hate again. And that was the beginning of the slow return to where I started. At Yale Law School, Clarence Thomas got his first taste of the Northeastern liberal elite view that he was only at Yale because of his race and not on merit. This is what he said. If you were black and you were at Yale, the presumption were quite different than if you were white. So if you're white and you graduated from Yale, the presumption is what? It is that you were really among the best. On the other hand, if you're black and you were there, you didn't really quite belong. So we'll discount that a bit. They can say 10%, they can say 5 but the reality was the discounted approach resulted in certainly me not being able to get a job. He was rejected by every law firm he interviewed with, with a Yale law degree. He finally gets a job with Attorney General Jack Danforth in Missouri, a Republican, a party at the time he despises, as he says in the book. He is mocked by at least one classmate who says he is going to a job beneath a Yale law degree. But he loves his job as an assistant attorney general and still calls Jack Danforth the best job, best boss he ever had. Of course, if you know the story, Senator Danforth will play a huge role in Justice Thomas getting confirmed to the Supreme Court. During his time in Missouri, he reads a book that changes his life, Race and Economics, by Professor Thomas Sowell, who becomes one of Clarence Thomas's intellectual mentors and a close friend. Professor Sowell challenged the liberal orthodoxy on social welfare programs, and as Clarence Thomas points out, for Thomas Sowell to do so as a black man is treason. In December 1980, Professor Sowell invites Clarence Thomas to a conference devoted to discussing new approaches to social programs like busing, affirmative action, and welfare. It's at this conference Clarence Thomas expresses his views to a Washington Post reporter that these social programs are destroying the black family and his family, and his views are published. He is viciously attacked. In our book, he says, for minorities, you're not supposed to have certain thoughts. They, there were those set opinions that were supposed to be universal among certain groups. And to criticize these policies, particularly their effects, you were a bad person. Then license is given to others to attack you. 
you're not really black because you're not doing what you expect black people to do. But Clarence Thomas never stops advocating for his own views and acting on them. After his grandparents died in 1983, and he is being pummeled by the left for not bowing to their demands to change his view, Thomas explains his reaction. So I'm asking them, why am I doing this? There's nothing positive going on. And I'm getting the heck beat out of me. I have to then flip it around a little bit. For what will you die? Is there something in life that you will die for? What about your principles? So I decided that the principles on which I was raised, my grandparents, the, the principles of this country, were worth dying for. In 1986, Clarence Thomas is a single father raising his son Jamal from his first marriage. He does not have much money, and the left is continuing to attack him. At a bright spot in his life, he meets Ginny Lamp at a conference. And as Clarence Thomas says, she was a gift from God that I prayed for. They married one year later and have been best friends and soulmates ever since. And as many of you know, Ginny is a well-regarded conservative activist and warrior for causes, including pro-life matters. And of course, because of her conservative activism, the left has repeatedly attacked her. And we need to defend her. And that's uh, Justice Thomas and uh, Jamal. This is just before they were married um, in 1987. During the 1980s, Clarence Thomas served in the Reagan administration, including as the chairman of the EEOC from 1983 to 1990. He ran it well. Even the Washington Post had to concede that. Yes, I agree. <laughs> but in the midst of running this agency, he also did a deep dive into our founding documents, and particularly the Declaration of Independence. Here's another clip from the movie. And we would literally spend hours discussing the founding. And then they would give me reading materials, and we would write um, articles, and we would go off to American Political Science Association events and argue with positivists and libertarians. Oh gosh, it was, now that was a lot of fun in the sea of all this stuff. Thomas Jefferson had written in 1776, all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That's natural law in a nutshell. How then could a country founded on these principles have permitted slavery and segregation to exist? The answer was that it couldn't, not without being untrue to its own ideals. I was looking for it a way of thinking, a set of ideals that fundamentally at its core says slavery is wrong. At its core, which natural law of course does. And what he found in that truth set forth in the declaration were those that he learned from his grandparents and nuns when he was growing up. As Justice Thomas recalled in a beautiful speech in 2021 at the University of Notre Dame, our neighbors and those in our daily lives taught us that God loved us equally and that America stood for that same ideal, even though it had failed to live up to it. Despite their fail this failure, our Christian duty was to still love our country, even as we objected to its evident shortcoming. This was more than a belief. It was a way of life. The Declaration captured what, had, what I had been taught to venerate as a child but had cynically rejected as a young man. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. In so declaring, the Declaration of Independence did not propose to have discovered anything new. Its truths were self-evident. They were despond beyond dispute. Clarence Thomas's deep dive into our nation's founding documents and on natural law was so providential for an appointment that would soon come his way a few years later. On July 1st, 1991, President Bush announced he would nominate Clarence Thomas to be a justice on the Supreme Court. In his brief remark, Clarence Thomas thanked, among others, his grandparents, his nuns, and his wife. He concluded by saying, only in America could this have happened. 
And from day one, the left attacked him in an unprecedented manner with all sorts of lies and distortions. In the first set of hearings, the Democrats tried to portray Clarence Thomas as holding weird views on natural law. You know, that crazy idea that we get our rights from God, which is in fact written in the Declaration of Independence. This clip from the movie captures this absurd and pathetic attack. Good morning, Judge. Welcome to the blinding lights. Finding out what you mean when you say that you would apply the natural law philosophy to the Constitution is, in my view, the single most important task of this committee. Senator Biden was very focused on natural law. How did that go? Who knows? I, I have no idea what he was talking about. I just want to make sure we all know what we're talking about here, that you and I know at least what we're talking about here. There's a fervent and aggressive school of thought that wishes to see natural law further inform the Constitution than it does now, argued against by the positivist led by Judge Bork. Now, again, that may be lost on all the people. You know and I know what we're talking about. I have to be perfectly honest with you. I, you sit there and you have no idea what they are talking about. All I know is that he was asking me these questions about natural law. Someone may apply it in a way, like Moore, who leads him in a direction that is, quote, liberal. You may apply it in a way that leads you in a direction that's conservative. Or you may, like many argue, not apply it at all. But it is a fundamental question that is going to be almost impossible for non-lawyers to grasp in an exchange. But you know, and I know, it is a big, big deal. And in conclusion, one of the things you do in hearings is you have to sit there and look attentively at people you know have no idea what they're talking about. And it was fine. I understood what he was trying to do. I didn't really appreciate it. Natural law was nothing more than a way of tricking me into talking about abortion. Since many Catholic moral philosophers saw the two things as intimately related. But my interest in natural law was different. Okay, I was enjoying that clip. Um, I'll just leave it at that, okay? Um, the White House, though, was winning this battle. The American people supported Clarence Thomas, including black Americans, overwhelmingly by a margin of three to one. But Thomas was such a threat to the black leadership that the NAACP opposed him. Of course, the left's efforts to protect abortion on demand was a key driver to the opposition to Clarence Thomas. In the book, in discussing the pro-abortion women's groups, Thomas noted, get this up here, what I realized, and I should have realized more fully, is that you really didn't matter and your life didn't matter. What mattered was what they wanted, and he's talking about the pro-abortion groups here, what they wanted, and what they wanted was this particular issue. And regardless of what I had done with my life, it was all canceled out unless I agreed that two plus two equals five. You have to say it. And that makes it true because they want it to be true. But Thomas would never say it. On the verge of getting 60-plus votes for his confirmation, the Democrats pulled out all the stops and leaked the Anita Hill allegations. These allegations had already been investigated by the FBI, and the Democrat committee had reviewed them and decided they were not credible, and they were moving forward with a final Senate vote. Once these were leaked, it was a despicable smearing of a good man. This is Ginny Thomas on what was happening. So they were coming to destroy my husband, not just discredit him or differ with his point of view. This was the kill shot. I've written much on why these allegations were completely false. I even set up a website uh, to address every facet of it. But Thomas's testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee stands as one of the greatest takedowns in history. Here is a clip many of you may remember, which has resonated down the years. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. 
And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the U.S. US Senate rather than hung from a tree. It's still so powerful 30 years later, but watch this clip with Jeannie Thomas of what this was, what was going on. When Clarence gave the high-tech lynching speech, I knew how little of my husband was sitting in front of me. And I knew that God was with him because I knew he wasn't doing that on his own because I knew how weak he was at that point. what they did to them. During the hearings, during those hearings, Justice Thomas also talked about what his grandfather would advise him. You haven't mentioned your grandfather. I would like to have you tell me what you think advice he would give to you if he were advising you today. When I was getting hammered in the public and getting criticized, and I complained to him. He told me to stand up for what I believe in. That's what he'd tell me today. Not to quit, not to turn tail, not to cry uncle, and not to give up until I'm dead. He had another statement. Give out, but don't give up. That's what he'd say to me. Those hearings were pure hell for Clarence and Jeannie Thomas. In our book, Jeannie talked at length about the ordeal. And here she is. Clarence and I, even at this early point in our marriage, we were two became one. And so I sat there. I had all sorts of emotions and rage, really, about what these people were doing to my husband. As I watched him, I was watching their reaction to his words because I was so with him in everything he was doing. When these hearings finished, the American people overwhelmingly believed Clarence Thomas by a more than two-to-one margin. Only 26% of women believed Anita Hill. But even after Justice Thomas is confirmed on the court, 52 to 48 was the vote, the left continued to attack him in what can only be referred to as racist and despicable smears. He's not qualified in his Justice Scalia's puppet that he is a member of the Ku Klux Klan. This is pure evil. There's a wonderful book by Jan Crawford that shows, based on the notes kept by Justice Harry Blackman, no friend to this community, that, the, that from the very first meeting Justice Thomas attended with his new colleagues, he was moving justices his way. He was already having an impact. Justice Thomas represented a threat to the liberal order, and especially the black leadership. When Justice Thomas was invited to speak in 1998 to the National Bar Association, which is the largest black lawyer group in the country, retired federal judge Leon Higginbotham tried to prevent Clarence Thomas, a sitting Supreme Court justice, from speaking at the event. But Clarence Thomas did not back down. I have come here today, not in anger or to anger, though my mere presence has been sufficient, obviously, to anger some. Nor have I come to defend my views, but rather to assert my right to think for myself, to refuse to have my ideas assigned to me as though I was an intellectual slave because I'm black. I come to state that I am a man, free to think for myself and do as I please. I have come to assert that I am a judge and I will not be consigned the unquestioned opinions of others. The left has pushed this narrative that Justice Thomas is a conservative who does not reflect the views of black Americans, who actually pursues policies that are harmful to black Americans. This is a lie. 
Thomas is a fiercely independent thinker, but if you review the polling on issue after issue, the majority of black Americans agree with Clarence Thomas. Abortion, affirmative action, school choice, voter ID. It's the black leadership that is out of touch, but you will never hear that, and few will point it out for fear of being attacked. Justice Thomas is our most original justice of the modern era. What's that mean? It means a judge who believes his job is to faithfully apply the terms of the Constitution based on the original meaning of that provision when it was ratified. You don't substitute your policy preferences. You don't change the meaning of words to update them. Usually, you do that in a way to get your policy preferences. This approach at its core is a judge doing his job with humility, understanding his or her important but limited role in our system. Elected legislators should be making policy decisions, not unelected judges. Ultimately, this approach better protects individual liberties. A classic Thomas opinion will do a deep dive into the language at issue, reviewing contemporary source material. Often it's an incredible history lesson. They're long, but they're well worth reading. All meant to understand what the original meaning of a particular phrase is and how that applies to the case at hand. Because of this focus, Justice Thomas is less concerned with precedent or stare decisis, which is a rule that says justices should follow a previous Supreme Court ruling. But Justice Thomas believes if something has been decided incorrectly, they should not blindly perpetuate this error. Here's Justice Thomas in our book on stare decisis. With these notions like stare decisis, we say, that's been decided, everybody fall in line. Well, then why are we here? Are we supposed to stop thinking? Well, goodbye. I'll think on my own. And we saw Justice Thomas in his powerful concurrence in Dobbs challenge several Supreme Court precedents that were based on this made-up substantive due process out of whole cloth, this whole doctrine of, that underlies so many terrible cases. He will not back down, come what may. Justice Thomas has served for more than 31 years, and he is the 12th longest-serving justice in our nation's history out of 116 justices. He has written more than 700 opinions, more than any sitting justice, and more opinions per year on average than any justice on the court. Sometimes around 30 opinions per year, close to 40 in some cases, where other justices only write 10. Justice Thomas has made a project, there is no other word for it, to lay out a robust vision of his views on many areas of constitutional law, leaving a roadmap, oftentimes in solo dissents or solo concurrences. And now the Supreme Court is following Clarence Thomas's roadmap in its decisions and opinions in so many areas. You'll recall, 1992, Justice Thomas voted to overrule Roe Roe v. Wade and Casey. In his dissent in Carhartt in 2000, which I was reading again this morning, which struck down Nebraska's ban on late-term abortions, Justice Thomas read his dissent from the bench, a rare move for any justice, and noted that Roe and Casey were made up out of whole cloth because they were not rooted at all in the Constitution. And he described in graphic detail the horrors of late-term abortion. And he called out his colleagues for just ignoring that. But 30 years later, the court in Dobbs followed Justice Thomas's opinion and struck down Roe v. Wade. And on many important areas, including the Second Amendment, religious liberties, reigning in the out-of-control administrative state, the court is following Justice Thomas's jurisprudence that he's laid down in a principled and sometimes lonely manner for the past 30 years. He is our most principled, bravest, and greatest justice. Even a left-wing legal writer wrote recently, Justice Clarence Thomas is the most important legal thinker of his generation and the most consequential judicial appointment of the last 40 years. But Justice Thomas's impact on jur- American jurisprudence is not just limited to his opinions and rulings. His most enduring legacy may be the influence he has had on a generation of law students and young lawyers, and most especially his law clerks. He mentors his clerks and forms a lifelong bond with him, unlike, I'd say, any other justice. Can you go to the next one here? Oh, there. Um, Every year, Justice Thomas takes his clerks, four of them, up to Gettysburg Battlefield at the end of the term. Usually it's a tough term, and uh, he takes them up for the day, and here's what he says. I wanted them to understand why we do what we do. It's not about us. It's not about winning and losing on the court. 
It is about the entire country and the idea of this country. So our annual trip to Gettysburg is for that purpose. His law clerks have gone on into the world to challenge the status quo of American law. More than any other justice, Thomas' clerks have been appointed to state and federal judgeships, 15 so far, including on the federal courts of appeals, and several will be likely considered for the next opening on the Supreme Court under a Republican president. Many of them are state solicitors general who are out there challenging laws. There are former Thomas clerks as SGs, solicitor generals for Governor DeSantis, Governor Yunkin, and the Mississippi solicitor general, former Thomas clerk Scott Stewart. He was the lawyer who successfully argued the Dobbs case to overturn Roe v. Wade. How about that? In this term, I went to this case, in the affirmative, two cases, in the affirmative action cases against Harvard and University of North Carolina, four Thomas clerks were representing, former Thomas clerks, were representing the group challenging these racially discriminatory admissions policies, with two of them presenting at oral argument. It's a large and growing family with more than 120 clerks. The Thomases, and especially Ginny, have connected these clerks and their families into a supportive network. They have reunions, but the entire family is invited. They help each other, and they look out for one another. To be around Justice Thomas is to be around a joyful presence. That's what people don't understand about him. He's warm and funny and gregarious. He's full of life. Despite the attacks, he's joyful to his friends, colleagues, uh, groups visiting the Supreme Court. This is what Justice Sotomayor recently said about him. Justice Thomas is the one justice. Oh, I just lost my space again. Justice Thomas is the one justice who knows everyone in the building, every employee's name, every one of them. And not only does he know their names, he remembers their families' names and histories. He's the first one who will go up to someone when you're, when you're walking with him and say, is your son okay? How's your daughter doing in college? He's the first one that, when my stepfather died, sent me flowers in Florida. He's a man who cares deeply about the court as an institution and about people who work there. As some of you have read, he loves to travel the country with Ginny in his bus, which is this photo I had just pulled up before. Oh, uh, that one. That's his bus. Uh, and he, he loves to get out in, in America. They've traveled to 42 states in this bus. At last count, they stay in Walmart shopping centers, RV parks. Um, and uh, they're, they're there on one of their trips. And I've been uh, on several uh, bus trips <laughs> with Justice Thomas uh, as his wingman as we go down to... Florida or Georgia, places like that. Justice Thomas is a huge Nebraska Cornhusker fan. His, his wife is from Omaha, and he's attended their football games and the women's volleyball uh, matches. He does not miss any of their games on TV, and these days, given their respective rec records, he's much more happy watching the women's volleyball team. <laughs> he knows all the statistics. He knows every statistic of every player, and even the recruits, and whether they're a three-star or a five-star recruit. Here's one of my favorite clips of Justice Thomas, uh, right here. And now, for the most famous words in motorsports, the Grand Marshal of the Daytona 500, the Honorable Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Can you see any other Supreme Court justice doing that? <laughs> he loves life and he loves people. Let me take you back to the Franciscan sisters who taught him. After he confirmed to the Supreme Court for many years on Martin Luther King Day, Justice Thomas and I would leave his home around 6 a.m. and drive up to Tenafly, New Jersey to spend the day with Sister Virgilius and her fellow sisters, many of whom also taught Clarence Thomas at St. Benedict's. We would have lunch in the cafeteria with all the nuns, and Clarence's face displayed such joy as he reminisced about those days and caught up on how the sisters were doing. He would visit the sisters bedridden in the infirmary. Uh, and Sister Virgilius is on the far left right there. And when Sister Virgilius passed in 2013, at the age of 100, we attended her funeral. He never forgot who helped him when he, when he was young. 
In, 20, in October 21, 2021, Clarence Thomas attended a small ceremony for the blessing of a statue of Sister Virgilius, who's in that statue right there, at a cemetery where 200 Franciscan sisters are buried, many of them his former teachers. More than 20 nuns, many in their 80s, attended the event along with friends and family members. Thomas greeted all of them with hugs and smiles. When he made his brief remarks, Thomas fought through tears to thank the nuns who changed his life. This extraordinary statue is dedicated to you, sisters, to all of you who have given so much and have asked for so little. He has spoken at length about his grandfather as being the greatest man he's ever known. Here's a photo of Justice Thomas in his chambers. You can see a bust up at the top of that shelf of his grandfather. It was given to him by his wife, Ginny, and the inscription on the base says, Old Man Kant is dead. I helped bury him. When Justice Thomas wrote his memoirs, he titled them, My Grandfather's Son. I urge you to read this book even before the book we just published. Now, Justice Thomas stays focused on the important matters, despite all of these attacks. And how is he able to do that? He has his friends and family, but he also has a litany of humility, which he has a copy of uh, hanging in his chambers, and he recites it every single day. And some of you may be familiar with it, but here are some of the lines. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. I'm incredibly inspired by all of you and your commitment to fight to protect the unborn child, every single one of them made in the image of God and deserving of the right to life. I want to return to Justice Thomas's speech at Notre Dame in his discussion of the meaning of the Declaration of Independence and how we order our lives. He says, the Declaration establishes a moral ideal that we as citizens are duty-bound to uphold and sustain. We may fall short, but our imperfection does not relieve us of our obligation. My nuns and my grandparents lived out their sacred vocation in a time of stark racial animus and did so with pride, with dignity, and with honor. May we find it within ourselves to emulate them. In our battle to protect the unborn children, remember these words. I will close with Justice Thomas's words from a speech he gave at the American Enterprise Institute in 2001, perfectly titled, Be Not Afraid. In fact, it's even better to hear it in his voice. In my humble opinion, those who come to engage in debates of consequence and who challenge accepted wisdom should expect to be treated badly. Nonetheless, they must stand undaunted. That is required, and that should be expected, for it is bravery that is required to secure freedom. In my humble opinion, in my as I have said, active citizens are often subjected to truly vile attacks. They are branded as mean-spirited, racist, Uncle Tom, homophobic, sexist, etc. To this, we often respond, if not succumb, so as not to be constantly fighting by trying to be tolerant and non-judgmental. That is, we censor ourselves. This is not civility. It is cowardice or well-intentioned self-deception at best. Pope John Paul II has traveled the entire world challenging tyrants and murderers of all sorts, speaking to millions of people, bringing them a simple, single message, be not afraid. He preached this message to the people living under communist tyranny in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in Nicaragua, and in China. Be not afraid. He preached it to the Africans, facing death from marauding tribes and murderous disease. Be not afraid. And he preached it to us, warning us how easy it is to be trapped in a culture of death, even in our comfortable, luxurious country. Be not afraid. Listen to the truths that lie within your hearts and be not afraid to follow them wherever they may lead. Those three little words 
hold the power to transform individuals and change the world. They supply the quiet resolve and unvoiced courage necessary to endure the inevitable intimidation. Here's the last one. Today, as in the past, we will need a brave civic virtue, not a timid civility to keep our republic. So this evening, I leave you with a simple exhortation. Be not afraid. God bless you. Justice Thomas's story should be known and celebrated by every American. He's our greatest justice, our greatest living in America, American, and an American hero. I hope that learning more about Justice Thomas and how he never backed down from standing up from what he believed in, you will gain even more inspiration and resolve in the battle to protect the unborn children. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark Paoletta. Before we get into the question and answer period, we went first to St. Albans Episcopal Church, mm. where the Reverend Jack Danforth presided over a service of thanksgiving, delivering a moving, heartfelt homily on justice to a room full of pews packed with the familiar faces of family and friends. Then we went to the White House, where I threw protocol to the winds and went directly to Mark Paoletta's office to thank him for his friendship and for everything he had done to defend me. We sat among tall stacks of paper, eating hamburgers, and talking over the strange events of the summer and fall. I knew how inadequate my words of gratitude sounded. It would have taken a poet to tell him how I felt, but I also knew that out of this nightmare had come a friend to whom I would remain close for the rest of my life. That was from Justice Clarence Thomas in the book that we referenced earlier. God willing, we should all have such a friend. And by the way, anybody here think it would be okay that when Mark comes back to speak next year, he brings his buddy with him? <laughs> You've been listening to Mark Paoletta, partner at Sherjaffe LLP Law Firm in Washington, D.C., a senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America and our 2023 presenter at the Bringing America Back to Life Convention. From the Median is listener-supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org, for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, radionews at fromthemedian.org or call 440-668-4049. Through our fromthemedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. This program has been sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content.